Now we have Web3, where not only are we exchanging messages of information, packets of information, now those packets are about value. It gets at the heart of even why governments tax, particularly in times of war, et cetera, and to protect borders that are now being threatened by a borderless currency. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist and former Australian Treasury official. The aim of this show is to help you better understand the big economic issues affecting all our lives. We do this by considering the theory, evidence, and by hearing a wide range of views. I'm delighted that you can join me for this episode. Please check out the show notes for relevant information. Now on to the show. Hello and welcome to the show. In this episode, I talk about cryptocurrency with the author of a new book on the topic. The book is Digital Money Demystified and the author is Professor Tonya Evans from Dickinson Law at Pennsylvania State University. Among her many achievements, Professor Evans was a 2021 Forbes Over 50 listee in the investment category. She's on the board of directors of Digital Currency Group and she's testified before a congressional committee on digital assets. In other words, she knows what she's talking about on crypto. This episode was recorded in mid-November 2023. Please check out the show notes for any important developments since then, particularly for any news about spot Bitcoin ETFs that may have happened. I should note that one big thing that's happened since the interview is Binance and its CEO pleading guilty to criminal charges for anti-money laundering and US sanctions violations. US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said, its willful failures allowed money to flow to terrorists, cyber criminals, and child abusers through its platform. As always, if you have thoughts on this episode or other episodes, or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch. I'd love to hear your thoughts on crypto, positive or negative. What do you think about Professor Evans' defense of crypto against the major criticisms that it faces? Has she changed your mind on crypto? What about the recent news about Binance or SBF before that? Please let me know what you think after listening to the episode. Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Professor Tonya Evans on crypto. Professor Tonya Evans, welcome to the program. Thank you, Gene. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this. So uh, I'm happy to happy to chat about my favorite topic. <laughs> oh, very good. Yes. Yeah, so you're certainly passionate about it. I've been reading your book over... Well, the last two nights, uh, it's uh, it's an easy to read book, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I got through it in in two sittings on my Kindle. So, uh, well done on that. Uh, so, yes, uh, your book is digital money demystified from go from cash to crypto safely, legally, and confidently. To start off with, what do you think needs to be demystified about digital money, or in other words, what motivated you to write this book? Yeah, this, it's interesting because I do so many speaking engagements, obviously, as a not only as a law professor, which is kind of a different exercise in exploring things. I know we'll get into some regulatory stuff later, but at a higher level, there's so much misinformation about the nature of the assets, um, why they even exist, um, what types there are, how they're different. Um, some of the most common myths that I constantly explore and help people to right size include the level of 
crypto involvement in criminal activity, which is actually quite low, the nature of volatility and the the um, existence of volatility is not the myth. This is a nascent asset class. And so obviously it's very volatile. So when I compare crypto as a nascent asset class to earlier developments of assets like the stock exchange, for example, we go back to the 30s and Buttonwood and the volatility that was involved, so many things going on behind the scenes that people weren't aware of. And that was very problematic when you think about uh, the asymmetry of information, which is often extremely problematic in the finance lane, you really need to have the transparency and accessibility and for an open market. Otherwise, you don't have an open market and people are left to their own devices. People are investing in things when they don't have all of the information. And so that's what made it really interesting for me to, one, start to study the area, but two, to make sure that people understood the existing system, how crypto assets and blockchain technology actually change that and kind of where we go from here. As you can tell, the book is not an argument for someone to absolutely buy crypto. I still leave that up to the person, but I want them to have a more informed body of information to draw from so that they can actually make good choices. One of the ways that I like to explain it is to say, you can actually be a prudent crypto investor, which sounds like an oxymoron. It's like prudent and crypto investing. How do those things go together? But people are afraid of what they don't understand. And and the reality is, and, and we will continue to talk about this in our conversation, this technology is here not just as a matter of Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of the other coins, but every major, not major, but every country is looking at its own version of digital currency in the form of central bank digital currencies. Um, We have FedNow, which is not in and of itself a cryptocurrency, but it's kind of like the, the framework or the platform for digital assets that I believe, my personal opinion, The government would not have this uh, official statement today. But three to five years from now, we'll look back on this moment in time where FedNow, the rails, the frameworks to enable digital asset transmission, I believe will be the precursor to a central bank digital currency in the United States. Um, and, And finally, when I think about the various investment products that will become available, probably I'm pretty conservative. So I would say the beginning of 2024, we will see an an exchange traded fund specifically for Bitcoin, probably 12 to 18 months after that for Ethereum. This will be an investment product that is available to investors and also the professionals, the financial advisors that have to make sense of this, the CPAs, the lawyers. So for all of these reasons, at least demystifying the space so that people don't fall victim to the clickbait and the, the sensational headlines, some of which are horrible. Yeah, I There is no place for criminal activity. Sam Bankman-Free is going to enjoy a lot of time in jail. I'm absolutely for that. But, you know, that is one small part of a larger ecosystem where the great majority is used for uh, legitimate, not nefarious purposes. So for all those reasons, I just think it's important that people level up their um, their understanding. You see from the book, the glossary of terms, just helping to demystify and understand so that people will lean into the education piece to decide then if this is something that they want 
to add to their profession or their portfolio. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the glossary of terms just then. I think that's one of the uh, standout features of the book. So yeah, good work on that. Professor Evans, could you just explain the difference between some of these scams? Until I read your your book, I didn't appreciate the difference between an exit scam and a rug pull. So I hear about rug pulls all the time on CoffeeZilla's channel on YouTube. Could Are you able to go over what those different crypto scams are and what to watch out for, please? Yeah, they're quite close, right? So it's the, the difference of having a team that from the beginning knows that they are going to turn the lights off at some point. They're going to, you know, pump up the price, get a lot of enthusiasm. And their goal from the beginning is to scam people out of their money, right? And to to set the market conditions in order to get the highest price possible to leave others downstream holding the bag, right? As opposed to someone that at least in the beginning has some good intention and realizes at some point in time it's not going well. And that uh, people who have invested fall into what we talked about earlier about not having all the information. So you have a key, some key decision makers that still have an influence on a project. Oftentimes it's not built yet. Uh, so they have grand plans. They have a roadmap. They might have a white paper. But at a certain point, they run out of gas and they disappear with everyone's money. And all of a sudden, you can't find them anymore. Hmm. Closely aligned. But so it's more the intentionality from the beginning. But the end result is a lot of people get caught holding the bag. Right. So the exit scam is where there's that uh, intentionality at the beginning. Is that right? And the rug pull is, oh, yeah, we stuffed up. Let's just try and get out of it. And yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, bad luck investors. Okay. That's right. Right. Righto. So you're a Gen X law professor, right? So uh, I think uh, I read that in the the book. So you're the same generation as me. And I I often feel I'm probably, if I was five years younger, I probably would have got massively into crypto, but uh, I was probably, you know, at the start of it, I was a bit skeptical of it. Um, how did you become, like as a lawyer, as a law professor, how did you become interested in crypto in the first place? I had a friend who was uh, getting an advanced degree in the future of media and kind of the intersection of media and new technologies. And to st- take a step back, I actually am primarily an intellectual property lawyer and law professor. I just actually celebrated my 25th reunion from Howard University School of Law. So I've been around for a minute. I practiced law for 10 years before I even started teaching. And now as a a, a recovering practitioner, also known as a law professor, you know, I get to <laughs> lean into things normatively how they should be rather than day-to-day kind of practically what they are, right? That's really the transition from representing clients to informing law as it's being developed. Uh, And so I was very interested in the work that she was doing at the intersection of media and blockchain. I had heard of Bitcoin at the time. This was in 2017. Bitcoin was first launched in January of 2009. So it had been around for some time, but was really relegated to the fringes of uh, cipher the cypherpunk movement, mostly those uh, kind of tech uh, men, mostly with a technology 
technology background and also in finance and kind of like this microcosm of two microcosms is the area of cryptocurrency. So mainstream adoption or even awareness just wasn't a thing at that time. And also, as you mentioned, I'm a lawyer. I'm licensed to practice law in four states, uh, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and D.C. Uh, I am highly revered in my profession. I have no intention of losing my license. And so trying to make sense of this magic Internet money was not something that that I was at all interested in at the time. But what I was interested in is her discussions around the underlying technology that was organizing financial data, the transactions and the balances in a very novel way, using existing technologies, but again, um, organized in a novel way. So what were the technologies, are the technologies? Uh, Cryptography, which is the encrypted messaging that has been around in some form or fashion, quite frankly, for millennia. Obviously, it's digital now, but the idea of going from point A to point B or sending a message, often in times of war and other areas, The ability to send to encrypt and decrypt messaging was critically important, Uh, but that's been around for uh, forever. Then we have peer-to-peer technology. So as an IP lawyer, I'm also interested in this part because when I first learned about peer-to-peer technology, it was going to, you know, upend the media uh, ecosystem and that entire industry was going to fall because you and I could be in completely different places but I could send you a perfect digital copy of a media file and then go on the internet and send it to a thousand of my not so closest friends without exhausting the original. So I guess that was great if you wanted to share music, not so great for the music industry, but for everybody else. But obviously that if you are doing that with money that uh, runs into the double spend problem where, you know, I can say I have a hundred dollars in the bank, but send it to you and also to Susan. Mm. And the first person to cash that check (laughs) is the one who wins. That is, that's just not going to work for money. So the novel way of using cryptography, peer-to-peer technology, the internet, and then a a novel way of coming to agreement, we would call, call this the consensus mechanism of coming to agreement where I don't have to trust you, but I trust a software that is pre-coded with the rules of engagement. Um, and it, it's open source software, which is also uh, lends itself to copyright, to patent areas of interest as an intellectual property attorney, where I was like, well, I have to figure that out. I have to let my students know that this is something that is changing the nature of intellectual property. And it doesn't, it didn't seem at the time that I needed to also fundamentally understand um, cryptographically secured digital assets. Um, But I fell down the rabbit hole. (laughs) It was quickly apparent that understanding the technology, I need needed to understand the nature of the assets that were being um, validated, verified, and secured in this type of new decentralized database. I didn't have any appreciation for all that language at the time, but being drawn in in my existing area of expertise, I think was the best way for me to be intellectually curious and to really learn more. Gotcha. And are there many legal cases? Is there much litigation regarding crypto? What we're seeing now involves, the short answer is yes now, but mostly at the federal and state levels against um, 
federal or state regulators and various parties or or stakeholders, participants in crypto. Um, I don't know if you have a lot of them in terms of the actual number, but the import of of actions with the SEC, the Security Exchange uh, Securities Exchange Commission, against some of the the big ones. We have Coinbase. We have the Ripple case. With it. Ripple is a network that um, has a native token called XRP that has been tied up for a long time until recently when a federal court said that the SEC, led by Gary Gensler, had really overstepped the boundaries of their regulatory power. The way that uh, regulatory bodies in the executive actually get their power is it's delegated from Congress. So an agency can only do as much as they are empowered to do by their enabling legislation. And the federal court said that the SEC overstepped its bounds, actually making it the clearing the pathway, I should say, for those spot uh, Bitcoin exchange traded funds or ETFs that are likely to be approved uh, begrudgingly by the SEC, in my humble opinion. But as soon as November 17th, perhaps in the first quarter of 2024, that is one of the most exciting and also pressing legal issues that people will start to learn more about. Um, There's other things going on with Treasury, trying to make sense of how to properly tax crypto. It was always a nightmare when I first started buying and and exchanging crypto in, in like 2018, where you literally had to have a spreadsheet because crypto, all crypto assets are taxed in the United States as a capital asset. Mm. So imagine that every time I am going from cash to crypto, as I say, uh, from, you know, a dollar to some portion of Bitcoin is a taxable event. Even if I'm using the dollar to get Bitcoin and then within the same day or maybe the same week, then exchanging Bitcoin for ETH and then using that to get a stable coin. Every single time there's a an exchange that is considered a taxable event, even if it's negligible. And so the argument before the uh, before Treasury in general and the IRS in particular is there should be some de minimis amount. You know, right now, the number that's floated is about the equivalent of $600, where we, I mean, it gets to be completely impractical to have to account for every single uh, transaction under that amount, because you're not worried about money laundering. You're, you know, you're not worried about significant fraud or anything like that at that level. Uh, And so that's a really interesting thing to watch. And then finally, there's a lot of I don't think it's going to happen in 2024 because we're in a presidential cycle, but a lot of support for various types of legislation to give greater certainty as a matter of regulation, um, greater clarity of what uh, agency is actually primarily empowered, if at all. Will there be a primary or lead regulator as between the SEC and the CFTC? That's major. Mm. Um, the CFTC is responsible for futures and for commodities, but there doesn't seem to be agreement between the head of the CFTC and the SEC about the 
taxonomy, uh, the, the, the characterization of various assets. And it's problematic because most of them are programmable. They actually can change the nature of their character. They might start out as a security. I, I argue that Ethereum actually did start out as a security. It was um, uh, the project was not yet built. They did an initial coin offering, inviting people to invest and get a return on their investment. That is, and it was not registered. That would be a classic unregistered security. Mm -hmm. But years later, when it was fully decentralized, there's no central foundation or entity responsible, I argue. And the head of the CFTC would agree that that ETH is a commodity. But the SEC's head, Gary Gensler, does not agree. So I say all that to say there's a lot of uncertainty that is driving business away from the United States to other jurisdictions where it may not be easier, but at least it's clear. And that's one of the the greatest um, dangers in the United States is that we would not lead um, in this area. Um, So those are some of the things to really look for in the headlines that have a direct impact on mass adoption. And what uh, jurisdictions would they be, Professor Evans, that the activity could be driven to? So we see a lot of offshore stuff in, um, and by off, sometimes when people hear offshore, they immediately think illegal. Yeah. It's just literally off of the shores of the United States. So um, it makes me think of the Bahamas that has its own uh, central bank currency, the sand dollar. It makes me think of Bermuda. I'm a former uh, member of their advisory board, their uh Uh, financial technology advisory board. They were quite forward thinking. Bermuda is particularly interesting because it's a jurisdiction that has a long history of well-regulated, very clear insurance. Um, And so that's an interesting place. Uh, Zug Switzerland is known as, you know, like uh, Crypto Valley in the same way that we might think of Silicon Valley here in the United States. Quite forward thinking. Singapore is ahead of the curve. Absolutely. It's um, the UAE, despite all that is going on in uh, that area of the world, the UAE in general, it makes me think of um, Dubai in particular and Abu Dhabi. A couple of years ago, I um, was one of the first of Forbes 50 over 50 listees. And we celebrated in Abu Dhabi, for example. And I was amazed not only how opulent and beautiful, but how progressive in terms of of forward thinking with with crypto. And finally, um, and this is not a leader that we want to follow, but it's a cautionary, well, I'll say it, a cautionary tale uh, regarding central bank digital currencies is China. China was the first country to launch a central bank digital currency, which raises in me all sorts of alarm bells, not not for central bank digital currencies in and of themselves, but the huge issues around financial privacy that people need to get up to speed on if, in fact, the United States would start to um, publicly explore CBDC here, that you want to have the same Um, financial privacy that you do with cash, but have the convenience and uh, things that are better, faster, cheaper uh, with respect to digital assets. So there's a lot going on in this space and a lot of activity. In fairness to the United States, there are some countries, and I've mentioned a few, where you have just one regulator. 
They don't have the alphabet soup of the FCC and the CFTC and the partridge in the pear tree, right? In in on in the executive. They don't have the committees and the subcommittees wrangling for jurisdiction um, and oversight authority in the legislature. They have, you know, it's more simplistic. And so it used to kind of not be a great thing, but it is when you need to be nimble and move quickly because our system is not intended to move quickly. It's actually built this way to slow things down and be more methodical, but that doesn't work with this type of technology. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I imagine that our regulators, I'm in Australia, so I imagine mm. they're looking uh, closely at what's happening in the States uh, to see uh, where where things land. Um and you, yeah, it's fascinating about this Bitcoin ETF. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know that there was a group in Congress that's looking at the regulations. Have, have they changed the regulations around the SEC yet or is that something still to do? Do they need to give SEC more powers? They're exploring it. Yeah. The short answer to your question is yes, because the um, rulemaking authority that is delegated to uh, an agency comes from Congress. Mm. And so, and we call those enabling or, or um, enabling acts. There's another term as well, but enabling acts. So basically Congress says, here's the framework. You're the subject matter expert executive agency. So you all kind of, you're the mortar to these bricks. And it's the executive branch in general, agencies in particular, that that put into play the actual rules and regulations and actually run the thing. You think of it like as you have a CEO, the president, and then you have all of these um, smaller bodies that take care of the day-to-day functioning based upon, okay, we have this delegated authority from the legislative body. But it's ultimately up to Congress to say you've overstepped what we asked you to do. We empowered you to do X, Y, but now you're doing Z. Or also to say, hey, when we created this enabling legislation to empower this agency, we did not have this in mind. We did not have this in mind, right? And so we're going to need to go back to the, the drawing board on this. And I am encouraged that there is in many important um, for many important issues, there seems to be a bipartisan effort. I don't think this is beholden to one uh, party or the other, although it is certainly playing itself out that way. Uh, when I think of President Biden's uh, executive order to order all of the agencies to look into the space and to come up with their rules or report outs, et cetera. That happened back in 2022, in March of 2022. So um, a year later, we have some of those reports. The concern has been, and it's been a bipartisan concern that, uh, and what what I testified about in March was about what appears to be a choke point 2.0. Choke point 1.0 was an actual policy under the Obama administration that was cutting off banking access to certain industries deemed to be harmful at the time. So it was like the payday lenders and things Mm. like that. Uh, Ultimately, it was overturned, uh, but you could at least intellectually understand why that might be. Um, But it ended up not passing muster. We don't have something on the books, but in effect, it has been very difficult for people operating in the crypto industry to actually be banked. They said, you know, it's basically like, well, if you want it to be off 
you know, off the grid and have your own little money, then you won't use our banks to do it. Uh, and what we're seeing is that, and that has happened in the marijuana industry as well. It's like if this is if something is otherwise legal and lawful, that we shouldn't have a government operating against it to thwart its progress and kind of kill it in, in its infancy, which what it appears to be. Uh, and so you will see this discussion around banking and and being able to onboard, meaning going from cash to crypto and offboarding, settling out selling in the way that you would sell stocks and then recoup in in fiat. So we'll see that playing itself out too, but that's another major issue. Right. So is that really difficult at the moment? So does the government make it difficult to do that? It has been very difficult. Even for someone like me, in addition to teaching at Penn State uh, Dickinson Law School, I have my own onboarding platform. It's an online business. I do not sell tokens. I do not invest for other people. And I have either been debanked or had um, um, an application denied just because I am a crypto educator, which makes no sense in the world. And it was too difficult because what banks were also hearing is, the government doesn't like it. Even though banks are private, they yeah. are in general. They are inextricably linked with the government, as we always see in terms of bailouts, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you hear from on high that this is something that the government at this point in time does not fully support, in my humble opinion, because it is a customer service issue when you start exchanging value that isn't beholden to a government, that's a big deal. You know, it's a, we're basically looking at a time where we have Internet 3.0, Web 3.0 is what people refer to it as. In the Web 2.0 version, there was great support around the globe for the global exchange of information. Yeah, we were you had to use the Internet. You had to protect the Internet. Uh, Katie Kirk and Brian Gumble had to figure out what the hell email was because we were all going to use it. Right. And. That was great. And we wanted to to support innovation, blah, 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 blah. Now we have Web3 where not only are we exchanging messages of information, packets of information, now those packets are about value. It gets at the heart of even why governments tax, particularly in times of war, et cetera, and to protect borders that um, are now being threatened by a borderless currency. That's a BFD. (laughs) And so that changes the conversation, even though the technology is the same. And so we have a customer service issue. And until governments can figure it out, I don't think they're always going to be very excited, particularly in the United States, where we have the globe currently. uh, Let's talk about it in 10 years, but currently the global reserve. Mm, Yeah, yeah. In in your book's title, you talk about going from cash to crypto and that's a you've got a registered trademark sign there is that your platform is it professor evans could you explain what cash that's to correct. crypto is about please yeah that's my signature course so i i when i launched advantage evans academy my primary course and it's still up and very popular today it's an on demand evergreen version that i'm constantly updating actually because things change every year and it takes you in five modules from introducing folks to fundamentals or even the purpose. Um, We start with mindset of even trusting ourselves, managing our own money, because as a Gen Xer, I grew up, the minute that you had any money, you're going to put it in the bank. 
And it's interesting to learn more as I've uh, learned more about the crypto space to really fundamentally start to unpack savings and loans. It's like, all right, so let me get this straight. I'm going to put a whole bunch of money into the bank. Maybe you used to be able to walk down to the bank. I don't know if people can do that anymore. And I'm going to put my money in and it's going to be safe there. And up to $100,000, I'll get it back if we all want our money, even though I plan to have way more than $100,000. Story for another day, right? But let's say I just have $100,000. It's FDIC insured. And I'm going to earn a pittance, if anything, in interest. And then that same bank is going to loan me back my money for cars, for homes, and they're going to keep the spread. Yeah. Um, I don't like that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't like that system. I didn't know that was a system where I was taught not to trust myself and not to worry my pretty little head about it. Well, I've learned so much in the last six, um, going on seven years than I have. And I went to Northwestern. I went to all the best schools. I graduated with honors from law school. My dad's a doc. My mom's a lawyer. I knew nothing about money before I really started to lean in and see how disconnected I was, even from the process, even from understanding when people ask me, what is Bitcoin backed by? It's like, what is the dollar backed by? And I don't hate dollars. I love dollars. Mm. But we haven't been on the global, um, excuse me, the gold system standard for decades. Yeah. Based on the full faith and credit of the government, we keep coming up against the threat of government shutdown. We've had two downgrades in our credit rating because people aren't trusting us as much as they used to because it's our full faith and credit. Um, Our word is supposed to be our bond and it's scaring the rest of the world. Um, So this is also an uh, alternative to that that people need to get aware of. Um, Not necessarily a replacement in toto today, but you definitely want options in this world. Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. This is something I've covered on the show uh, quite a bit because it's obviously a you know a huge issue in economics. And uh, I mean, the way that I think about it and that economists think about it, well, Milton Friedman in Monetary History of the United States even mm. you know he acknowledged look money is a fiction but what we've, what the question is which uh, which fiction is the most powerful or do you most believe and the fact is that with dollars you can you know settle existing contracts all the prices <laughs> are in dollar terms right. uh, and you know you can pay your taxes to the uh, inland re- internal <laughs> revenue or to uh, to uh, the Australian taxation office in in the local currency so that's what gives the the dollar uh, power or means that mm-hmm. it, that fiction is strongest and and I think that's that's why you know, many economists are concerned about that and why there is that concern about, well, maybe, I mean, is this volatility going to ever settle down? I, I don't know. I mean, I think I take your points in your book. I think you make the best possible case for, for Bitcoin right. and for you know, crypto. Uh, but, yeah, that, I think that would be the concern of, of economists. Do you have any thoughts on that at all, Professor Evans? 
I think it's important. It's an important uh, metric. I don't even know if it's of success or not, but just to understand what position crypto should have, if any, in an overall portfolio. Mm. And obviously there is, I mean, Bitcoin, for example, is up almost 70% this year. Uh, and it is one of the quickest ways over its life cycle to get a significant turn on investment as it goes through its bull and bear cycles in the same way that the stock market goes through bear, bullish and bearish cycles, um, the manipulation, and I don't use that pejoratively, but the way that um, monetary policy is set with inflation, we're tweaking, it's kind of like we're calibrating, right? And so there's a natural energy life cycle to assets. And as long as you are strategic, you could have something that is very, very uh, safe and secure and predictable, offset with something that isn't. With great risk comes greater reward. And then it's an overall balance, a balanced uh, portfolio that I think is most important. Uh, I would not recommend, although I know some you know, Bitcoin maximalists will cash out their 401k and put it all into Bitcoin and let it roll. They, I think there's a privilege in being able to do that because I believe that if past is prologue, we are we will be entering a bull market soon. I think with more positive news, we're getting past the crypto contagion. We have endured a two and a half, almost three year down cycle. And historically speaking, things have um, ticked upward. Uh, Bitcoin is generally the the rising tide that lifts all boats around. So even really crappy coins start to do modestly right. better when Bitcoin is doing better. That's one of the many dangers I see in the space. Um, but you know, wh whether or not this becomes, this entire ecosystem becomes more stabilized, I believe that is possible. I just don't know if I can read the tea leaves yet of when, mm. but I do believe it's not a matter of if, but when, giving, given the import of this technology that is just so pervasive across industry um, and sector. It also makes me think of what will be the monetary standard, and this is not too far-fetched to stay, in space, in outer space, and we don't have all of the sophisticated borders and uh, things of that nature, but you're going to have to have a common currency that becomes more than any one government or, or country's currency. What currency will that be? It's probably going to be a digital asset. Which yeah. one? I don't know. It may not be Bitcoin, but it's going to be some type of digital coin. Um, and so preparing for that now and having a first mover advantage, depending upon your risk tolerance, is something that I'm willing personally to do. Um, and I believe the first step to that is for folks to lean into education. The From Cash to Crypto program is great for fundamentals. Obviously, the book is a quick read that just level sets facts so that people have a better idea of what questions to even ask as they start to kind of become cautiously optimistic in the space not fall victim to fear, uncertainty, and doubt, or FUD, um, and definitely not to fall victim to, to FOMO when people start talking about it and and celebrities are back in oh, and yeah. NFTs are all the rage and the next DAO comes out. Like You cannot be emotional about strategically investing for the long term. Um, and so that's what I want to educate and empower people to do through through my work, through my courses, and certainly through the book. Gotcha. You raise an interesting question about 
effectively what's going to be the currency of the galactic empire i'm gonna to have to think more about that and see if any science fiction writers have thought about that i think that's, that's quite <laughs> exactly. a it's quite an important question i like it uh right um with the uh one thing i'm wondering is do you know how how extensive is bitcoin or crypto being used for actual transactions are contracts being mm. written in it do you see any of that going on that's a great question. I've not quantified that yet. I, I love that question. Um, you have to have me back and we can uncover that. What I know for sure is that um, more and more legacy companies are creating opportunities for their existing customers to stay on platform and to have access, exposure, or some of the the uh, benefits of crypto and the underlying technology. So uh, MasterCard and Visa, have products now that will allow you to either earn crypto back um, or to pay for things in crypto. And you don't really have to ever touch Bitcoin or whatever crypto is connected to it because that happens behind the scenes. But you can say, mm. I offer this product, right? There's still, yeah. I don't think their, set, their real-time settlement is to the blockchain, right? They still have their legacy infrastructure, but they want to not lose customers as, as people become more curious and have more opportunities. So Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, uh, they when PayPal first entered into the space, they would allow you to purchase Bitcoin. I don't think it was other coins at the time, but you couldn't take it off platform. So for me and for cypherpunks or others, like the whole thing is your own personal self-custody of your assets. Yeah. So I don't leave things on a centralized exchange, even if I, I trust it. Look what happened to, you know, those who had left their property on FTX's centralized exchange or BlockFi. Um, we saw a lot of lenders, you know, uh, go out of business and, and file bankruptcy and your coins go with it. So self-custody is a really important thing. But most people are not going to do that now. And PayPal knows that. So giving people the ability. They realized they weren't going to get a lot of traction if they didn't allow for people to take their Bitcoin off of platform. And eventually they developed a product to do that. And in addition, they recently, I don't know how to pronounce it, but they have their own coin. It's like PY something, but it's a PayPal stable coin so that they can do real-time settlement within their own PayPal ecosystem, which is really, really powerful. Cash App, you have been able to buy Bitcoin off of Cash App forever and then transfer it off into your own self-custody wallet. Um, we have in full tr transparency, I am um, a member of the board of Digital Currency Group, which owns Grayscale, has a uh, Coindesk, it owns Genesis at well, as well, the, the probably 200 different um, projects and companies in its portfolio. And one of those is Grayscale. Grayscale has GBTC. Um, so the, the Grayscale Trust, I'm sure uh, a number of people have seen there. Um, commercials and Grayscale is has petitioned or um, applied to exchange or change the character of GBTC into a spot Bitcoin ETF. Um, and so there are so many companies, BlackRock, one of the most prudent, traditional, historical uh, companies in the in the investment space has applied for uh, an ETF as well. So Deutsche Bank, yeah. it's just the, the the gamut. So most of that exposure has been for high net worth individuals. But um, 
uh, crypto really is a de- a democratic inspiring currency and that's not a particular political party it's this uh, d- democratic with a little d that democratizes access to to money and not just money because we it's it's a bit of a misnomer to say cryptocurrencies i feel like if we had it to do all over again we'd call it what i say as crypto asset because some function well as currencies as we've talked about but it also um here in the states and around the world um in 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 australia for sure we it is a capital asset mm. so it's not just currency it has additional powers and properties which is why many people right now lending to its volatility uh this idea of holding on we hodl or hodl uh you'll see right yeah. so used to it, the proper word was hold and then it was misspelled and now it's folklore to say hodl uh instead of hold but holding for the long term which makes uh bitcoin in particular more valuable because it has a hard cap uh unlike many of the other coins and currencies that are more susceptible to inflation in the same way we see uh, government-issued currencies. Um, so, so so, there's a lot there to, to focus on. Um, you mentioned volatility. There's one thing I wanted to tie up with that as well, uh, because it lends itself to what we're talking about now. As um, more entrants come into the space, as liquidity continues to rise, as clarity in the laws and regulations start to settle, Historically speaking, the volatility of pricing starts to diminish. And the interesting question will be, how long will that take in this space? It just feels like everything is moving more quickly. I don't know if it's because I'm getting older (laughs) or the world's moving faster or both. But what used to take decades and decades, I don't know that it takes as long anymore, but time will tell. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned GBT. Was it GBTC? Could you? Uh, mm-hmm. What does that mean? Sorry, I, I, I missed that before. GB. Grayscale has a trust company, and it sells shares of its trust. Um, and the trust holds Bitcoin and other assets. Gotcha. Uh, and what? And so that was permissible, but it was set up as a trust, not offered as an exchange traded fund for Bitcoin specifically. And so Grayscale. Uh, submitted uh, a proposal, an application that is sitting before the SEC currently to be approved for a spot Bitcoin ETF. So it has an existing infrastructure. GBTC is available and traded, but based upon um, trust interests, not as um, a spot ETF. And that's what we're waiting to see. There are 12 different um, applications before the SEC. An important date for approval is the first one would be November 17th. So there's been a lot of speculation. Will the SEC approve one, a few, Mm. all 12? So as not to be kind of like the kingmaker to say, this is the first one we will approve. Maybe that would unfairly you know, nod to one particular company over another where I believe the SEC hates them all, my opinion, <laughs> not the not the opinion of this show. <laughs> but the federal court said what it said. So we're going to, you know, not a matter of if, but when, but will it be all of them? Will it just be the one from Grayscale? Will it be the first one that they received? Uh, but there's some date certains that are built into the application process. And that's what the SEC is coming up against now. 
Right, okay. Yeah, definitely uh, look out for that. Uh, right, I've just got two more questions if you have time for mm-hmm. us, Irvins. This is fascinating. Uh, really, uh, really interesting. And I like the point you made about how you got to make sure you actually own the the assets, the the crypto. There's a phrase you use, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but something about you, if you don't own the keys, you don't own the crypto. Is that it? Something like that? Yeah, not your keys, not your crypto, not your keys, not your coin, not your keys, not your cheese, whatever you fancy. <laughs> gotcha, yeah. The other term I learned that I fa- uh, is the lamb bro, so for the Lamborghini bros. Oh, yes. <laughs> and so if we do have that, you know, the bull market in uh, in crypto, we'll, we'll see a few more Lamborghinis out on the street. So it's a bit of a... We a, might. Yeah. And I will have to say that those who, particularly cypherpunks, hate, hate, hate this moniker. They hate it, hate it, hate it. And I get it. I will tell you as a woman who's gone to a number of conferences, it's rough out there sometimes. I think there are men who um, have the privilege of not seeing how um, male-dominated it certain ecosystems can be, I mean, certain uh, conferences can be and how intimidating it can be when people are drunk and things are going on and it's very flashy. I think that is a misrepresentation in general, of my experience, and I'm a black woman, as long, you know, I talk the talk and walk the walk, I have generally speaking been received well, I have to say. Um, that being said, the Lamborghinis, the parties, the strippers, like that's a lot. So when it makes me, but, um, you know, you think of the idea that we have the finance world and we have the tech world, and then they come together into this microcosm. The crypto ecosystem is a microcosm of those two spaces where um, women are underrepresented uh, significantly, even though it continues to improve people of color, et cetera. And so there is no um, impediment other than one's own education and knowledge and awareness of the space, which is encouraging. And I think... um, uh, for those who have been in the space for a long time or maybe from the cypherpunk movement would say, we're not keeping anybody out, right? Many are libertarians. They were like, equalism is good. Get yours. I'm going to get mine. I'm not going to keep you from yours. Don't keep me from mine. And I get that. I respect that. I think that there are other um, forces at work that make me want to be more intentional, um, to know how much personally and professionally I have benefited from the knowledge and awareness, the professional pivot I did as a lawyer, as a professor, as an educator, that now I believe for anyone in the world, it is the best opportunity in countries like mine and countries like yours to get ahead, to kind of level the playing field, to get um, get caught up as a matter of generational wealth at any other time in certainly my history, but I would argue the history of the world because things are digitized, we're starting to remove like redlining and gatekeepers, uh, things that would maintain the status quo to have the best for just a few and then the rest left for everybody else. This is one of those pivotal inflection points in life. And I don't think it's hyperbole to say, because I know personally and for those who I've helped educate who are like me, that this was, that makes it more exciting too. And so it was really important for me to put that chapter in the book because I wanted to not only say, ah, the crypto bro thing, it has existed, but it 
hopefully is the exception and not the rule for people who are very serious in the space, but also it misrepresents all of those who are curious and well-positioned to take advantage of the space too, because the only thing that is keeping people out presently is a lack of awareness, education, and some protection as they enter uh, an untested space in many ways. Gotcha. And that is one of the themes of your book. You were uh, referencing it before. It's the idea mm-hmm. that you see this as it, it can level the playing field or it can provide opportunities to people from uh, minority groups. And I know you're not saying definitely invest in crypto, but mm-hmm. yeah, how do you think about that? Because I see risks in crypto. And I mean, is this the right thing for someone starting out or some someone with not a lot of resources to to invest in first thing? How do you think about that? I would like to see kind of a both and approach, particularly with respect to Bitcoin. When I first started in the space, I, for a number of reasons, one, as a professional and 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 thinking a lot of my profession and not wanting to misguide people, knowing people would trust my voice if they heard it from me. Uh, and so I didn't want to be in the habit of saying, buy Bitcoin, buy ETH, buy this, buy that. Um, I've changed my approach because Bitcoin is quite special, as are stable coins. I actually think stable coins are the best way for people to get in. They're not going to get wrecked by volatility. There's some really strong ones. Um, USDC from Circle, I have great respect for that team for doing an exceptional job. I know some of those folks personally. Um, I love USDC. We also have Tether. I don't know who the people are, but I know Tether is very important to the Ethereum ecosystem. It's kind of like the oil that keeps things going there when people want to jump out of the volatility of the market, but not out of crypto. They often move into stables um, and there are ways that you can earn interest and yield and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so... I believe uh, the short answer to your question is that this is a space where you want to start buying. You do. The best days right now are when most people aren't there. (laughs) The best times to make a sizable return, if it's to be had at all, is when most people are scared. Right? Warren Buffett says, be greedy when people are fearful and fearful when people are greedy. Uh, when people start to get greedy, that's when you know you're probably getting to the top of a cycle and it's time to like stabilize, move things around, uh, rebalance, reposition. Um, and to really understand that with all of those, you know, thousands and thousands of tokens and coins, I hope you're not going to buy them all. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Probably not going to buy the overwhelming majority, but they're the, you know, the top five, top, top 10 have a proven track record. That doesn't mean they're always going to win. But if you start now, you start learning the language. Um, it's what I've even done with stocks when I started swing trading, not day trading, but swing trading. Sometimes I had to start to learn how to uh, read charts and candles and wicks and mm-hmm. bar graphs, right? To start understanding if this is the way this particular assets move, once it hits this particular range, maybe that's a great time to buy. Maybe I'm wrong, but at least I'm using some type of disciplined, um, non-emo- sep- uh, disciplined approach, like separate from emotion. Um, and that's really important. Some of those same strategies can be used in the crypto space, but the major caveat, um, not only as a matter of of volatility, but also this is 24-7, 365. There are no national holidays. (laughs) There's oftentimes no customer service. I mean, if you're buying and holding on an exchange, you have some additional layers of protection. 
but you have some risks even being on exchanges. This is the time to learn about this. Uh, stable coins literally are, are pegged to a particular asset, in most cases, the dollar or some equivalent uh, of that as well. So you don't have to go up and down with the market, but you can learn about the market. And then finally, back to my original point about Bitcoin, because it has a hard cap of 21 million coins that will ever be in circulation. And actually 19 million are already in circulation, but it'll be a long time after my life and yours when the final Bitcoin is actually issued for some technical reasons we can talk about next time, but Mm. it's special. It's um, special, and actually, I don't think, and I think many people would agree with me, Bitcoin doesn't really function well as a peer-to-peer cash for more stable economies in Australia, in the United States, in Canada, in various places in Europe, because um, it's a nice-to-have for most people, not a need-to-have. But then you go to other nations, you go to Central and South America, you go to countries on the continent of Africa, and you start to see uh, places, um, Ecuador and El Salvador, where there's complete destabilization, this confiscation. It is critically important that people have access to something that will hold its value better than the national currency that is more trustworthy and non-confiscatable in the same way that their local currency is. And when, I, when you start to learn about that, like people need to travel and understand different cultures and people to really get a handle on why this, even if it's not important and like a nice investment to have for some, it's life or death for others. Um, and eventually every one of us will be touched by some catastrophe at some point that will have a direct impact on our finances, be it natural disaster, something going on, God forbid, with the government and everything in between. Like We have to pay attention to what's going on in the world and to, there's 99.9% of things we can't control. Control the controllables. Mm. And one of those is your own level of education in a space that's transformative, but has the potential to be empowering and to protect you down the road. By the time you need to figure it out, it's oftentimes too late. Um, so now's really the time. The market is kind of quiet. The bad actors are starting to get rooted out. This is the time when you don't have the FOMO and FUD pressure and you can proactively start to take some uh, significant steps in the right direction. Righto. Okay. Final question. Uh you mentioned about criminal activity and mm. as a proportion of all crypto activity, the criminal activity is very small proportion. Okay, accept that. But but has crypto, is there any evidence on whether crypto has enabled uh, criminal activity? So it's expanded the amount of criminal activity out there. In, so does it make it easier to traffic arms or, or just, you know, awful things like tr- human trafficking, et cetera? Do we know in drugs? Do we know anything about that? It's just a small, small part. There are some significant bad actors who deal precisely in the things that you've mentioned. But, um, and the Wall Street Journal here, um, maybe within the last, well, had to be within the last month, they ran this um, completely error-ridden report about Hamas raising millions and millions in Bitcoin. And there was this huge rush by Senator Warren and some other folks signing off on letters saying there needs to be immediate action taken. And it was just completely wrong. And 
it was scary that our legislators would rely on something that was so faulty and with um, not insignificant pushback and fact checking, mostly coming from the crypto community. The Wall Street Journal had to issue a retraction and the senators had to stand down. That what was said to be millions and millions that Hamas, Hamas was like, please don't send us any more money. They can track it. Thank you. Send us dollars. (laughs) Send us dollars. Do not send, send us dollars in oil. Do not send us Bitcoin because of the nature of the tracking. You can literally go to any Bitcoin tracker and see in real time. Now it's pseudonymous, not anonymous, but with, um, uh, Chainalysis and some other companies use what's called uh, blockchain forensics. And it's really like following the money. It's a paper trail, but only it's not using paper. And every single transaction, all the way back to the original transaction uh, in Bitcoin issued by Satoshi Nakamoto, him or herself, is on chain visible. And you can see from wallet to wallet to wallet to wallet. And you start aggregating pieces of data This is the way the Department of Justice here in the United States starts to root that out. And and it's just a terrible place for activity. Now, the one point is it might be easier to get it up front, but it's not a matter of if, but when uh, with the right resources behind it, some of that stuff is going to get uh, found and people will be routed out and they will come to justice. So this is a terrible thing for 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 criminal activity. That doesn't mean criminals won't try. They're very lazy mm. and maybe they don't know a lot about it either. But that's why there's a um, a relatively insignificant amount, because, you know, it's easy to hide physical cash. Right. Um, it's not easy to hide something that's there in plain sight. So. It's tough to combat that point because of the pervasiveness of like the sensationalized headlines. Um, And again, not to diminish what's going on. We use um, Sam Bankman-Fried, for example, as an, you know, kind of the poster boy. But it took less time because he was apprehended in the Bahamas on November 7th. And like basically almost a year to the date. He's a convicted felon and we're just waiting for his sentence. It took way more time to find out who was involved in the the, um, housing crisis, way more time to take down Bernie Madoff. It's all garden variety fraud, but it happened far more quickly in the crypto space. And I don't think that the crypto space gets enough credit for that. Mm, yeah, good point. Very good point. Okay, Professor Tonya Evans, this has been amazing. I really, yeah, value your insights and your your deep knowledge of this sector. This is uh, this is really terrific, and I got a lot out of this. And yeah, I'd love to do a round two uh, sometime in the future. Uh, but yep, digital money demystified. Uh, I've got it on Kindle. I think it comes out in paperback uh, next year, early next year. So yep, I think uh, yeah. Nope, def- it's here. Oh, it's it is here the, now. Is it? Here now. Go to your favorite place and buy, buy, buy. You can go to digitalmoneydemystified.com, but it came out on October 24th, so it's available wherever books around the world are sold. Okay. Oh, very good. I must have misread that. That's that's terrific. Well, um, Professor Tony Evans, uh, thanks so much for your time. I really valued the conversation. Appreciate you, Dean. Thank you. Righto. Thanks for listening to this episode of Economics Explored. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email via contact at economicsexplored.com or a voicemail via SpeakPipe. You can find the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could tell anyone you think would be interested about it. 
Word of mouth is one of the main ways that people learn about the show. Finally, if your podcasting app lets you, then please write a review and leave a rating. Thanks for listening. I hope you can join me again next week. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more content like this, or to begin your own podcasting journey, head on over to obsidian-productions.com.